All right. Good morning to you. All right. Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. We are in a study of the book of Luke. It is uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, uh, which falls in January. And it has been an interesting year when it comes to Sanctity of Life, has it not? Uh, with the, uh, the change at the Supreme Court level in their view on what Roe versus Wade is and whether or not that finds uh, and is enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, that issue has now moved down to the state level. Have you seen anything in the news about what's happening at the state level about Roe v. Wade? No, okay, you don't read the news. That's fine if you don't read the news. Uh, it's a significant uh, issue when it comes to certain states. What you're seeing across our country are kind of battle lines being drawn with individuals who are in power at the government and local levels about whether or not they will enshrine uh, a woman's right to abortion or whether or not they will defend life in the womb. Uh, so it's a pretty significant Sunday. And as I've meditated on this Sunday coming up uh, to this point, as we as a church might seek God's face and pray for this significant issue in the life of our nation, my heart and mind were drawn to two per per uh, particular passages that have to do with leadership in a country. David, at the end of his life, writes a song uh, and he writes in this song in 2 Samuel 22, he says this, The God of Israel has spoken... The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And I, I don't know about you as you've thought about this issue in general as a Christian, but one of the things I've thought about is that, and asked God for, even leading up to this Sunday, is that God might... Uh, grant that we have more and more men and women called into political office who have the convictions and a love of the Lord to be able to walk out the principles that they know to be true about who he is and what he's called us to. So that's one of the burdens on my heart as I come to this Sunday. You could pray for a lot of different things when it comes to sanctity of life on Sunday, but that's one that I think we should seek God's face on because it comes right out of Paul's words to Timothy as well. And Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says this, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, we're going to pray for our local officials, for our state government, that they might be able to recognize what is evident to us uh, in God's word about protecting life in the room, protecting those who are most, most vulnerable among us from the womb all the way to end of life issues, that Sanctity of Life would have its day uh, in our hearts and in our, uh, in our state. So I'll pray with me in that, and then we'll get into what we're going to do here in Luke chapter 2. Father, we pause for just a moment and ask that you might even now be raising up men and women, men and women of great principle, of great courage, and great godliness to serve as you have uh, declared that government is your, ser are your servants, your ministers. Father, that they might be uh, developed and discipled in churches that love the Lord, who love his word, and then desire to serve you in public places of political office and might stand in our day for truth, for righteousness, for wisdom, for goodness, that they would dawn on our city, on the citizens of our state like the morning light. Father, that you might bless them and encourage them in that endeavor. We pray for uh, them to be men and women of great principle 
So Father, we look to you for that. We pray that we as a church will continue to fight for and participate in uh, standing for the cause of life as we partner with the Low Country Pregnancy Resource Center, as we partner in the Walk for Life and partner with doing things that we know we can do in our city. Father, we pray that those principles and those values and faithfulness to your word would go forward from this place. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. All right, well, let's jump in here. Luke chapter 2. You got your Bible? Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, 41 to 52. When we started the book of Luke, one of the things that you uh, learn is that Luke contains about 36, 37 percent unique material that's unique only to Luke. You don't find it in any other gospel. And one of those pieces of information uh, of Luke's unique contribution to what are called the synoptic gospels, the ones that take a same view, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they look at Jesus' life, is this text that we look at here today. It's Luke 2:41 to 52. So as you're, as you're finding it, what we're going to find here in, in um, Luke's account are Jesus' very first recorded words, his earliest first recorded words. So you may be wondering, well, well, if somebody quizzes you this week, what are the very first things that Jesus said? There's been a lot of conversation from angels, from priests, from the elderly, from mothers, from fathers, from all sorts of people in the beginning of Luke's narrative about who Jesus is and who John is. And they've just been babies, right? So they haven't contributed a lot to the dialogue. But what you're given is a ton of information in the beginning of Luke's gospel about who these key individuals are. Well, today we have our first moment in Jesus' life where Luke records for us something that he says. It, it comes when Jesus is 12. Uh, if you didn't know, this is from Mark chapter 6, but Jesus is from what we would call a large family. Jesus has at least, from what we know, four brothers and at least two sisters. So they need the full-size sprinter van to drive around. Uh, they are a, a big group of people, and Jesus is the oldest. What we're going to find here when we meet Jesus is that we're going to see who Jesus is as a 12-year-old. It's the only spot in your Bible where you get Jesus as a sixth grader. And man, don't you wish you had more information about, you know, between birth and Jesus showing up at 30? I mean, I wanted to know, like, what were, what were his high school years like? What did he do when he had to get his learner's permit? Like, how did he do on the baseball team? Like, I have so many, like, elementary school questions about Jesus at this phase of life. But all we get are really 10 or 11 verses. Uh, Luke 2.41 happens. There's a jump. If you, if you see in Luke 2.22 uh, down to 239 that, that Addison shared with us last week, we had Jesus at about 60 days old. So we jump forward and we're about 12 years into the future here before we pick up the story again and then we'll pick it up again next week when John enters the scene preaching the, the, uh, the baptism of repentance in the wilderness. But what I want to show you about this text is how the, the, uh, the story is bracketed. The story is bracketed with two almost identical statements that really are going to draw out for us the point of a passage like this. What in the world can you learn from 12-year-old Jesus? Right? Isn't that, what's the last time a sixth grader taught you something? Don't laugh. You're not looking to them for a lot of great wisdom either, are you? Well, what you're going to have in this story is the bracket of the statements in 240 and 252. Look with me in your Bible. 240 says this, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. 
Now go down to 252. 252 says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So in both sections, we're, we're turned on to the reality that Jesus is in development. Jesus is growing, and he's growing exactly the way he's supposed to. He's growing in wisdom, and we talked a couple weeks ago about what wisdom is. But what I want to ask and answer here this morning, looking at these 10 verses together, is what does maturity look like? Have you ever thought about that? What does it look like to really become mature? What are the marks of maturity? What are ways that you and I can examine maturity and say that's an individual who's growing in maturity? Because we can't just look to age if we all agree that when we look at Jesus at 12 years old that we need to, to listen to what he says, right? Welcome to Citadel Square. My name's Steve. We're going to start again. No, I'm kidding. We're about to learn something from 12-year-old Jesus so that when Jesus opens his mouth and tells us what maturity is, what it looks like for Luke to capture this picture of Jesus' maturity, that we need to sit up and listen and we need to ask some questions about what does it mean for us to be mature? Hebrews 5 captures this idea of the mature who are able to discern good from evil, right from wrong. But I... I would ask that when we talk about maturity, is that all maturity is? Have you found that maturity is kind of difficult as you, as you walk through life? That a lot of times when I think about becoming mature in my faith, I can easily diagnose issues of right and wrong. I've gotten pretty good at that. Steal that thing, don't steal that thing, don't steal that thing. But what I've found is that when I grow in my faith, the issues that show up in my life typically that have caused me to go from immaturity to maturity are issues of good, better, best. Would you agree with that? The issues in my life where I have had to take a stand on things can easily be misunderstood. Can it put me in a situation that makes me look kind of confused? I had an opera, a job offer before I went into ministry from an individual who owned a music shop and I was teaching drum lessons at the time. And he came to me and he asked me and he offered me a job of stepping into management, of being able to manage this music store in Northern Virginia at the time. And I just committed to going and being a part of a discipleship program where I was quitting my job and moving across the country to make $8 an hour to learn the Bible and learn how to make disciples, and learn to do those things. And I talked to a guy who didn't have the same values, that didn't have the same priorities that I did. And I remember distinctly this conversation where we were talking, and I said, no, I think this ministry path is what God is calling me to. And he said, well, yeah, you can do ministry here, though. And I thought to myself, as I reflected on that conversation, is that I was making a decision about whether I was going to choose good or best. Where I, whether or not I was going to follow the path that I thought God had me on or I was going to settle for what conceivably would be a good job in a good place in a good part of town and I could do good things. But it wasn't necessarily the best. It wasn't the most important priority. So what you're going to see in this passage is Jesus' growth as evidenced by his commitment to what is most important. And it's going to come in a point of great tension. This text is, it is an incredibly emotional text. It's filled with, well, you'll see it. Let's pray. 
and let's get into it. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, I pray for your grace, that you would shape us by your word, that we would draw near to you and you would draw near to us. This morning, Father, as, as we come in and may feel like we are immature, that you would form in us maturity and courage and conviction and principle, that we would be men and women who fear the Lord and turn away from evil, that you would shape us through your word and through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 2, 41. Y'all there? Let's take a look. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Every single time we've been introduced to these families, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, we found them doing obedient things, right? We found them, well, Mary was kind of interrupted by Gabriel, but we found them regularly dedicated to the things of the Lord, They've participated in the feast. They've participated in the religious practices and rituals of their day. So we're not surprised as Luke gives us this part of the story. Sorry. We're not surprised to find Joseph and Mary committed to following the Lord as best they know how in their day and time according to the Jewish Old Testament practices of their day. Yearly, they would make this trip to be a part of the feast of the Passover. Typically, uh, the Old Testament, uh, God demands that the males of the country come and present themselves before the Lord three times a year. Uh, Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Pentecost were the three feasts. But because of the dispersion of Israel, because of their oppression during that time under foreign powers for the past several hundred years, typically the Jewish people, the Jewish males specifically, would all gather together and come to Jerusalem for Passover. Passover is a one-day event followed up by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and typically that feast period would be about those seven or eight days. So families would stream in from around the country and they would all come to Jerusalem for this event called the Passover, which commemorates the beginning of the nation of Israel, their freedom from bondage from Egypt as they come out, as the Lord strikes the firstborn son, as they would put the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel, and they would remember that the Lord passed over and did not allow the angel of death to enter into their homes because they were under the blood of the lamb. So this is a regular practice, a normative practice for Old Testament Jews. And here we find Joseph and Mary on their annual family pilgrimage back to Jerusalem itself. Now, uh, the temple is going to be a pretty significant, it's a pretty significant place in the beginning of Luke's book, and it's a significant place at the end of Luke's book, that you'll find the temple and its location kind of brackets all of Luke's story once we get to the resurrection narratives in Luke 23. So here again, it becomes a central focus in our mind as we begin as religious practices and rituals and customs all circle around Jerusalem and the temple. So it sets us up to understand that we have again at the beginning of this story certain characters participating in certain ceremonies and rituals headed to a particular place, the center of which is the temple. Now this is no random story as... Luke records it for us. Look at verse 42 with me. It gives us a timestamp, a very important one in the life of a Jewish boy, but it timestamps Jesus' participation in this annual pilgrimage as being 12. 
Now, according to the Jewish oral tradition, 12 is the year before uh, young men would enter into adulthood. It was a year of great training, great focus. In fact, according to the Jewish oral tradition, 12-year-olds could make promises and make vows, but they weren't held accountable to them until year 13. It would most likely be known today as if you have had any experience in the world of Jewish families and Jewish upbringings, it would be that bar mitzvah that happens where that individual becomes a son of the covenant, son of the promises. So we're one year before Jesus' official entry into adulthood. So Luke records for us, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. We've done this trip every year. Anybody consistently do go somewhere every single year? Okay, we're struggling, three or four, that's fine. Thank you, in the back, way to go. We have a, you get ready for those trips, you plan those trips, you know those trips are on the calendar, you know how we're gonna do those trips, you know who's going on those trips. It becomes a family custom, it becomes normative in our family culture to do this, and this is normative in their family culture to do these things. This is how we've always done it. Now, the tension in this text comes in verse 43. It's an important tension. In fact, it will drive the narrative going through to the remainder of our time here together. But it begins with Jesus making a decision. Look at verse 43. When the feast was ended, we've been here about a week or so. We're packing everybody up. We're putting them in the minivan. We're getting ready to get the caravan, drive all the way back to Nazareth headed back north. As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now up to this point, everything else has happened to Jesus, right? He's been a boy. He's been a baby boy. Where people have picked him up and kissed him and praised the Lord and done all these things. But he hasn't done anything independently, has he? This is our first moment where Jesus decides to make an independent decision. Now this independent decision, if any of you have middle schoolers, you recognize that this is about the age where they start changing in their relationship to the family. They start to grow in their own self-awareness, their own identity, their own relationships to the community, to family, to friends, to you as parents. They're beginning to recognize their own personal identity. Anybody have middle schoolers? Yes? Come on. You with me? Okay. But the key in Luke's recording of this is something that causes a problem. It causes a separation. It causes a division between Jesus and his parents. And it's the last few words of verse 43. Do you see it? What causes tension? What causes drama? What causes some consternation in the family? is that Jesus makes an independent decision that his parents don't know about. Now, moms, can you feel the pressure? Do you know where this is headed? Do you feel that parents, do you feel the tension of an individual, 12 years old, in the family who we've always been able to count on, who's been really good staying at home with his brother and sister? He never leaves the oven on. He's always conscientious, he's always kind, he's always submissive to our leadership. He's a perfect, yea, sinless nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old. 
but it's year 12. And he decides to do something that is outside of the family custom. He's outside of the family rhythm. He's outside of the plans that we have made to make this trip and do this thing every single year since he was little. And Simeon picked him up and blessed the Lord for him. Verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group. Now that's a pretty pregnant verb, isn't it? You ever, parents, you ever do any supposing? <laughs> well, we presume. I assume. We suppose. He's in the group. They went a day's journey. Now, they were typically, families would travel together, as you'll see in the remainder of this verse, and they would travel probably 20 miles on foot, in caravan, with animals, on donkeys, camels, whatever it is they use, they would go make about 20 miles during the day. They weren't fast, but they were walkers. They were slowly, but they make it 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, if you have middle schoolers, you have learned that as they move from five Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You're testing a little bit, right? You have certain boundaries and rules and regulations. You can go this far as long as I can see you. You can go only to that step because you're three. You can't go anywhere else. Otherwise, you'll set stuff on fire. But beyond that, you're starting to give them, you're, you're starting to allow them a little more leash. Not, no, not literally, <clears throat> but you get it. You're giving them a little more room to run, room to play, Right? I have 12-year-olds down to 3-year-olds. This is a very pertinent text for Steve Heron. But I understand that, that freedom that you're now giving your middle schoolers to be able to engage in relationships that are outside the direct supervision of mom and dad. Well, that's where Mary and Joseph are. They presume that he is with family, friends, acquaintances, buddies, relatives, whoever it is. Mary and Joseph have no reason to expect that, jo- that Jesus would do anything outside of the ordinary. So, they begin to search. Is he with your parents? No. Is he with your aunt? Is he with Zechariah and Elizabeth? No, he's not there either. Is he with his, his buddy? Is he with their friends? Is he with that caravan? Is he in that wagon? Is he with those people? Have you seen him? Is he with his, your relatives? You can feel the emotional intensity starting to build as now among the caravan we can't find Jesus. We don't know where Jesus is. He's not with all the friends that we thought he would be with. He's in all, not in all, any of the common places that we would expect. He's not there. And now we're 20 miles away from Jerusalem. Verse 45, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, which took how many other, another day of traveling, didn't it? It took another 20 miles of driving the camel going, get faster, please. Imagine in our day and time getting in the car with your whole family in the caravan of people and presuming that your middle schooler is in the car with your sister or your brother or your aunt or your uncle and you make a day's travel. You can make about 600 miles in a day. If you make sure the kids don't pee. If you got kids, you're going slow. My dad used to say, you can make it about 50 miles an hour. That's about as fast as you can go. But imagine a full day trip away from the family pilgrimage site and we all can't find the 12-year-old. 
And now we got to turn around. We got to get back in the car the next day. We all got to pack everybody up and we got to hustle all the way back to Jerusalem. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you worried about? Moms, be honest. What's he doing? Who's he with? Who's feeding him? What's he going to eat? Where's he going to sleep? We've been gone a day. We had to sleep. He had to sleep somewhere. Now we got to make a whole day back. He's got to sleep again. We don't know who he's sleeping with, where he's sleeping, who's taking care of him. Can you feel the drama and the emotional intensity of mom and dad looking for their son? When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for them. There are some legendary, there's a legendary Heron family story about my brother Joseph. Uh, when my parents... Uh, we had five kids. I'm the oldest of five. Joe is number four. And then I have a little sister. I have a, two brothers, two sisters. And there was a time where we couldn't find Joe. Joe was probably three or four. Joe's now like six, seven, six, eight. He's bigger than me, faster, stronger than me. But at that point, he's three or four, and uh, we couldn't find him. And you, to hear my dad tell this story, you can feel the white, hot fear, even today, grip his chest as he talks about not being able to find his three or four-year-old boy. He's not out back, he's not out front, he's not with friends, he's not in his bedroom, he's not in his sister's bedroom, he's not in his brother's bedroom, he's not in the kitchen, he's not in the living room, he's, we don't know where he is, can't find him, don't know what he's doing, do I have to call the cops, does somebody take him? And what we find out is shortly thereafter is that we found him asleep underneath a coffee table with his blanket out. Didn't hear anybody calling him, didn't hear anybody screaming for him, but we found him. You pull him out by the ankle. From under, you know who looks under a coffee table anyway? They're so low, and they can't, you don't know what's under there. But that's how we found him. In, our, in my own family, we have a, a three-year-old who's about 27% more devious than any other child we've had up to this point. Uh, she, we've learned that we play hide-and-seek, but we play it rarely with her because she likes to win. So... I get a phone call from Suzanne one day, who's, <laughs> Charlotte. And we find out that we were playing hide and seek. And somehow, in the course of hide and seek, the front door is open. Now imagine what's happening. We're calling, we're running, in through the house, upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, under the bed, find her. Where does she hide? We don't know where she hid. She's not in the, every, all the hiding places that we know. We finally find her, because she's so good at playing hide and seek. Uh, and she likes to basically hide until we are just desperately screaming her name and then get to the point where we go, oh, we're getting the candy out. Now we're getting candy out. And that's when she comes out, just happy as a clam. Find her. So we found her like behind, a, uh, where do we find her? Behind a, behind a laundry room door, thankfully not in an appliance. Uh, but have you been there, parents? Maybe you haven't. Praise God that you haven't. But man, something happens in your chest when you feel like you lose a kid. And I'm sure there are more stories like that out there. Look at verse 46. After three days, they found him. Now just pause for a minute and imagine the emotional roller coaster that Mary and Joseph and acquaintances and family and friends have been on. And after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And I think if we, if we just meditate on this just for a moment, it becomes an image for Mary and Joseph as they find him and come back to the place where they just participated in all the ceremonies and rituals of their day. They all come back to the temple and they find out he's in exactly 
the place where we were just worshiping God. And he's actually the center of attention. Because now as he is in dialogue with the greatest Old Testament scholars of the day, listening, dialoguing, asking questions, everybody now outside of that circle of typically how religious education would happen for 12-year-olds in this time would be a question and answer kind of Socratic method dialogue with Old Testament teachers. And now in the epicenter is here is Christ and around him are the Jewish teachers of the day and around them are all sorts of people who are listening and observing and looking in on this precocious 12-year-old who seems to have a great grasp of what he's understanding from these teachers. Look at 47. And all who heard him were amazed. Now they're amazed at essentially one particular thing. They're put together as two things. One is his understanding, two is his answers. And they really go together, don't they? But the understanding is a word that's used in the New Testament to talk about a junction, typically used about a junction of streams, where streams of flowing water, as we think about our own city of the Wando, the Ashley, the Cooper, these, these rivers all flow together to come into Charleston Harbor, right? Well, the picture you're getting with understanding is that this individual is able to master not only doctrine, but application. Not only doctrinal truths about God, who he is, what he said, but now is able to discern the appropriate application and put knowledge together with wisdom to be able to apply it to life. He becomes a master at applying the truth of God's word and being able to synthesize and bring junction together about God's word. And everybody, as they look in on this boy, go, he has such a mastery of God's word and its application to life that we are astonished. We are amazed. And we look in at his answers to go, how in the world can he understand and apply and synthesize the biblical truth the way he does? Now, you can imagine Joseph and Mary's emotional roller coaster of a life over the past three days. But I want to pause that just for a minute and talk. We talked a little bit about this with Joseph and Mary raising and talking about a home and a culture that we're trying to establish as young families. But I want to show you something that I think is important for us as we think about middle schoolers and beyond as we make disciples together as a church. What we want as our children move from elementary school into middle school, is what Jesus is demonstrating for us here, don't we? See, I want my children not just to know Daniel's in the, in the lion's den, not just to know that Noah built the ark, not just to know that Jacob had 12 sons, not just to know that Nehemiah built the wall, not just to know the parable of the soils, but what we want for our children is not just biblical facts, but to marry that with biblical understanding, right? So I want my children to be able to take God's word and through question and answer, through dialogue and conversation, show them what it means to put God's word into practice in life so that they're able to, I don't know, discern good friends from bad friends, so that they're able to know what it means to tell the truth and to have courage. See, our discipleship of our children can't merely be lists of facts from the Bible. Amen? 
Our discipleship of our children has to go far deeper than that. It has to go into the Proverbs sections of our Bible that talk about uh, generalizations, principles, integrity, courage, faithfulness, perseverance. Do you want your kids to persevere? How are they going to persevere if they think all we need to know are just Bible facts? Does that help you? See, for our children to grow, they need to take the truth of God's word and put it under tension. Do you know when a guitar string sings? Only when it's gripped between two poles. And when you strum it, it sings. Why? Because it's under tension. Isn't that what our life is supposed to be? Our life is supposed to speak and to sing truth that we know that gives anchor to our life so that when tension hits it, it sings out the beauty of God and the beauty of Christ. So when we're raising our daughters, the conversations that we are having right now are about their own personal walk with God. We're recognizing now that they exist in a family culture that has certain ways in which we do things. What we really want to do is stoke the fires of their affections for their own personal walk with Jesus, for their own ability to take God's word, to draw it near to their heart, to begin to live on it and go, no, this is what God says is true. This situation uh, it needs God's word to inform so that we are now are able to synthesize and understanding the people we're supposed to be. So Jesus gives us this example of a sixth grader who is now able to synthesize God's word and bring it into his daily life. That's what I do. We're going to do that until we're dead adults, right? Yes. Now, what do we want for our kids? We want the next generation to know the Lord. How are they going to do it? They're going to do it by our modeling with them the tension that we are under every day. To be able to say, I'm not sure exactly how I need to spend my money. I'm not sure what the best priorities are in this situation. I don't know how to discern good, better, best right now, but I need God's word. I need the community of faith. I need people around me to dialogue with me to go, I can't tell. Will you help me? Will you speak into my life? Now, the tension in this text, the real tension, comes in their dialogue. It's not so much in the story. The story really just leads up to this moment, isn't it? We're, we're all panting and waiting for the resolution of Joseph and Mary's emotional distress and Jesus' seemingly lack of concern, right? So what does Luke want to tell us in this passage right here? What is important for us to understand? And I think the thing that's important for us to understand really shows up in the dialogue. It really demonstrates what's been happening in Joseph and Mary's heart and demonstrating what's been happening in Jesus' heart. And we've got to wrestle with the fact that there is a tension and there is a difference between how Jesus understands his decisions and how his parents understand his decisions, right? Right? That's the real misunderstanding. That's the thing that we, we need to wrestle with as we look at a text like this. Because if Jesus is sinless, if Jesus is the Son of God, and if Jesus never sinned, then there's something that Luke is trying to teach us here about Jesus that is more important than Mary and Joseph's emotional well-being. Right? You tracking with me? Verse 48, let's see how his parents respond. 
Do his parents applaud? And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. I mean, maybe their upbringing with Jesus has been relatively normal. He's been perfect as a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven, nine, ten, twelve, twelve. Maybe they've forgotten the angels' stories. Maybe they've had sleepless nights as they've had other kids and they can't, they've put out the prophecies about Jesus from their mind. Maybe they forget the Simeon and Anna and they forgot what Gabriel had said that he will be the son of God. Whatever it is, I think we can forgive them for this emotionally distressing past two days. But when they find out that their 12-year-old son, imagine leaving, driving from Charleston 600 miles, losing your 12-year-old, coming back to Charleston and finding out that the very place he is is with seminary professors in the teaching lounge discussing the finer points of Old Testament theology. Is that where you'd look? You wouldn't look there. Is he in the marketplace? Is he with his friends? Is he following Roman soldiers around? We don't know what he's doing, but we find him in a place that we don't expect him to be. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And you almost expect, you know, if you're a parent like Joseph and Mary was, you expect Jesus to be searching for them as much as they were searching for Jesus, don't you? You kind of go, why? I've been searching for three days. You're not even out of breath. You're just sitting here enjoying yourself with all these t-shirts. What is going on? And Jesus goes, well, it's first, it's first Mary. So here's our question. If Jesus' choice to remain in Jerusalem wasn't sin, then what was it? What is Luke trying to tell us here? Let's take a look at what Mary asks him. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Now this is, this is fascinating to me. Let's look at the layers of what Mary has just said to Jesus. Now, would you agree that Jesus is hard to understand sometimes? Okay, let's grant that. I don't understand him all that well a lot of times either. But what Mary does is take her past three days, three days of emotional distress and she reads into Jesus' individual decision and she paints a picture that looks something like this. Let me tell you, let me ask you if this looks familiar to you in your own Christian life. I can't believe that Jesus decided to do something that I didn't understand and he didn't tell me. And here's what my 12-year-old must have been doing at that time. That person, that Jesus must have been making that decision to hurt me. That Jesus must have thought, this is the way that I'm going to get back at mom. I'm going to stay behind and I'm not going to tell her. And the whole source of my decision making is going to be, how can I get my mom riled up as best I know how? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay in Jerusalem. Now, let me make an analogous point to our own Christian lives. Do you ever do that? Is there ever a situation in your life where you go, I know what Jesus is doing. I don't understand what he's doing, but it can't be for my good. It can't be 
that Jesus is good and has never sinned and always knows the right thing to do. It must be that Jesus is treating me in such a way that all of this emotional distress is just fun for him. It must be that he puts me through the ringer and through all this praying and all this distress and all this anxiety and all this worry and I don't really matter to him. Jesus, you ought to care more about my emotional well-being. You ever have prayer time conversations like that in the car when you're driving? Son, why have you treated us so? This is personal for Mary. Now, we can forgive Mary, can't we? Moms, wouldn't you feel this way? You can't find your son for two days and you finally find him? Not distressed, talking with Old Testament theologians? Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary roots Jesus' decision in his lack of affection for her. Now, this text moves on questions. There's one, Mary gave us a question and a statement. Jesus is about to ask two questions. Now, would you agree that when Jesus asks questions, we're all in trouble? Don't you hate it when Jesus asks? When Jesus asks questions, he starts laying open our hearts, doesn't he? He starts exposing the very principles by which we understand who he is and who we are. And Jesus at 12 does the same. Isn't this annoying that Jesus is 12 doing this too? I could take Jesus at about 65 sitting me down and I go, okay, you're older, you understand things, you now give. But man, to take that rebuke from a 12-year-old, to take that rebuke from the son that you gave birth to, Watch Jesus' gentleness in this. Verse 49, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Now, that's a great question, isn't it? Well, what's, I mean, come on now. What's Jesus? Do you think we want to be known as the family who lost God? <laughs> Don't you know I mean, where did you eat? Where did you sleep? Do you have clean clothes? Did you bring your underwear? We don't know where you've been or what you've been doing. What do you mean, why were you, we looking? Of course we were looking. You're important to us. You're our son. You're our firstborn son. A lot of stories about you when you were growing up. I can't have lost Jesus, the son of God. That looked real bad in Nazareth. But then Jesus gives us another question that helps us understand information. He communicates something to Mary that, watch this, that puts her emotional well-being second to something else. Now, we live in a day and time where subjective feelings are all the rage. Don't we? We live in a day and time where if I feel it, it must be true. And what Jesus does, just for a moment with his mom, his mom, is put her emotional well-being second to another priority. Can you imagine, just imagine in your family, I don't know what your family culture is like, imagine disrespecting mom. Imagine making mom cry. You want to make your mama cry? That can't be of God. You want to cause your mother distress? You want to put your mother through that? So we're at a very interesting crossroads here, aren't we? We're at the crossroads between Mary's emotional stability, her emotional peace, that she's filled with distress and anxiety, and Jesus says, that's not the priority. 
Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now he gives her information. All through the book of Luke, Jesus uses this term must. If you're taking notes, circle that term. That that term shows up throughout the book of Luke. It's what's called a divine imperative. It tells us something that must happen according to God's plan. That's how it's used throughout the remainder of the book of Luke. Luke 4 says this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke 9 says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. Luke 13, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Luke 17, First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Mary has forgotten something very, very important about Jesus. She has forgotten that he is not beholden to her emotional well-being. Even in his family. Do you know where Mary will show up again? She'll show up. This is about the last time we see Mary until we see her at the cross and then in the upper room with the disciples. But in this story, there's only one other spot that she shows up, is that she shows up outside where Jesus is teaching in about Luke chapter 9 or so. And people come to Jesus and say, hey, your mothers and your brothers are outside and they want to see you. And Jesus looks around and says, who are my mother and brothers? It's those who obey the will of God. See, Mary has forgotten something very, very important about who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully and totally committed to faithfulness to his heavenly father, which is exactly what he says at the end of his question. Didn't you know that I must be in my, what? In my father's house. Your your father and I were looking for you. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? What did he just say? I have a family. I am distinctly and particularly related to. It's you and you're, uh, you and Joseph. But you have forgotten that my one and true Heavenly Father is the one that dictates the course of my life. Let me make another side point when it comes to families. If you're going to follow Jesus, you will be misunderstood by people in your family. Do you know that? If you're going to, not really, if you're really going to make decisions that flow from your love relationship with Jesus Christ, there will be people who don't get it. There will be people who go, why would you spend your time on that? There will be people who say, you're about to commit your life to do that? So that when Jesus says later on in the book of Luke, who are my mothers and my brothers but those who do the will of God, what he's saying is that you're about to align your purposes and your priorities around me, no one else. When Jesus makes the call to discipleship, he says, whoever wants to to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. He can't love me less, sorry, how's how's it go? He's got to love me more than fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. And he's got to take up his cross and follow me. I am meant to be the singular love relationship in your life that has say over everything. Over my emotional well-being? Yep. Over your decisions? Yep. Over your priorities? Yep. The single greatest question you can be asking yourself in your life and your growth in Christian maturity is, Jesus, what do you want me to do here? You believe that? Isn't that what we want for our children? 
for our children to leave our homes and have such a dynamic love relationship with their Heavenly Father that they go, God, what do you want from me? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to be? What do you want me to say? And what Jesus does in this moment for Mary is reorient what she has forgotten about who he is. Because he makes a statement that no other prophet, priest, king, or judge has ever made in all of the Old Testament. When David goes to God and says, I want to build a house for your name, he never says, God, you're my father. Moses never says, God, you're my father. In fact, what Jesus says here is so remarkable that it gets him killed because the Pharisees understand exactly what he's saying. The Pharisees understand that he is making himself equal with God. He is making himself of one essence with God himself to be able to have the audacity to claim that he is my father. This is what Jesus says in John 20. After he rises from the dead and he talks to Mary Magdalene, he says, don't hold on to me. I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. So Jesus says, I am What Gabriel already told Mary, he was the son of God. Jesus reminds Mary again that my greatest priority is faithfulness to my heavenly father. Verse 50, this is great. I'm so encouraged by verse 50, aren't you? They didn't understand the saying he spoke to them. What? Get in the van. Right? That's I mean, that was me. Why are you? Shut up. Get eight, 40 miles, 20 miles back. Your mom is crying. 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. What if it said, and Jesus rolled his eyes and got on the camel? Isn't this beautiful? Parents, isn't this beautiful? That Jesus made sure that Mary knows, I am the son of God. My highest calling is obedience to my heavenly father. And 12-year-olds in the room, this son of God is submissive to his sinful, not understanding parents. Now, can we do some preaching right there for the 12-year-olds in the church? That even Jesus submitted himself to people who didn't understand him who didn't know everything they ought to know about him. He went down and was submissive to them. And this is what I love about, uh, you know, I just love this about Mary. Mary gives us such a beautiful response to the whole story that she's been swept up in since the beginning of this book. She treasures up all these things in her heart. It shows you that Mary is willing to learn the lesson. She's willing to go, Maybe I had that wrong. Maybe my emotional well-being in that moment wasn't the most important thing. Maybe I need to reorient some things in how I understand Jesus. Maybe my misunderstanding and my emotional turmoil isn't the best thing to lead my home. I'm treasuring it up. I'm pondering these things. I'm thinking on these things. Because that's the the evidence of real maturity, isn't it? 
is that we're, we're taking in God's word. We're understanding now that, that there might be new priorities in our life. As you walk with God, boy, priorities change, don't they? Older Christians, don't they change? You've got certain seasons that come and go and show up in life and go, we've got to change our priorities to be really faithful to who God wants us to be. And that's the sign of mature believers is that they're sensitive to what God is doing. They're able to discern good, better, best. Amen? That's the image that we need to be able to go, that's right, Jesus, that's who you are. Jesus, I may be going through this season that I don't understand. I may be going through this season that causes me lots of turmoil and misunderstanding, but let me never forget that you are who you say you are. Aren't we glad that Jesus, as the 12-year-old, was seeking his father's face? Aren't we glad that he was arming himself with the word of God to go to battle with the tempter for us in four chapters, right? To be able to stand strong and persevere and do everything that he came to do to be pleasing to his heavenly father. And my prayer for our middle schoolers, my prayer for the middle schoolers in this church, for those of us who raise kids, is that we would model that kind of dependence and seeking his face to grow into maturity to be the people that God wants us to be. Amen? Father, thanks for this story of Jesus as a sixth grader. There's so much in it here, Father, that we need to learn and to know and Father, thanks for your kindness to reveal to us that even at 12, Jesus understood who he was. He understood his divine connection, the priorities and the purpose for which he came, that he came to seek and to save the lost, that he came to be our hope and our helper. He came to be the hero of the Bible. He came to be our champion when it comes to temptation. For those in the room, Father, who are feeling even anxious this morning about a variety of things, I pray that they would be reminded of Jesus' goodness, that they would be reminded of your sovereignty and your providence over all things, that you don't waste any amount of emotional anguish, but you use those things to teach us what's most important. So, Father, we seek your face in these things, that you would be a tender and good shepherd as you lead and guide us through these uh, emotionally turbulent times in our lives. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.